Uh, if you would turn to Acts 17, because we'll refer back to that passage several times, and then uh, I will be uh, jumping around to several other passages to which you are welcome to turn, but I will also read them for you. Two weeks ago, we looked at excuses that keep us from sharing the gospel. And we looked at five of them and some different variations of those five excuses. And the answer to those excuses comes down to our motivation. Are we, have we experienced Christ's love? Has it persuaded us that we need to take the gospel to other people? Last week, we looked at our approach to sharing the gospel. And then tonight, I want us to consider the three ways that people usually respond to the gospel and also what do we do when we receive those responses. Now the three responses that people have to the gospel mirror, I think, the three responses that we have whenever we hear a new idea. The first is, that's dumb, or I don't want to do that, or we just sort of reject it for whatever reason. It doesn't sound agreeable to us. We don't appreciate it. We dismiss that idea. We reject it. Secondly, we're curious about it. I never thought about that before. I wonder if that could be true. So we want to find out more about it. We're not ready to accept the idea, but we're at least willing to think about it. And then the last response is acceptance. This seems true. I'm going to make it part of my beliefs or it's going to replace something that I believed before. Which of these responses is most frequent in your own life? Probably to reject something, because we have, the further we go in life, the more we have a fixed perspective on how the world works, our understanding of how things are, and so when new ideas come to us, we tend to be more suspicious of them. Which response would then be least frequent? Probably acceptance, at least the first time that we hear something. Sometimes after we've heard it three or four times, we're more willing to accept it, but often the first time, we're not ready. Obviously, there's more factors to consider when it comes to presenting the gospel, but we do see these same three responses when the gospel is presented throughout the Bible, particularly in the book of Acts. And so I've been, I've been thinking about this as we've been studying through the book of Acts, and I've been reading through and just thinking about a number of the, the components of the book. How do we see those three examples illustrated? Well, we saw it in our passage this morning. Remember the ones in chapter 2 and verse 13. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. Others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. They saw the work of God. They came up with their alternative explanation, and they rejected it. They didn't want anything to do with it. And yet at the end of the chapter, we had those who were saying, What shall we do? We believe what you're saying. We're accepting what we're saying. What's the next step? So we see those two responses illustrated in Acts chapter 2. But in Acts 17, which is where you'll be, we see all three of those responses at the end of the chapter. Paul preaches, and in verse 32 of Acts 17, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So we see those three responses illustrated at the end of Paul's message at Athens. Some sneered. Some said, let's hear it again. Some accepted and believed at that specific point. 
And I think that those are the responses that you will find that people will give to you as you share the gospel. But when we get those responses and someone rejects us, it's easy to be discouraged. When we get those responses and someone questions us, they're not ready to accept what it is we're saying. Sometimes we're confused. I don't know what I should do. And of course, when someone is ready to accept the gospel, hopefully we'd be ready at that point. But again, I think it's helpful for us to review that. So let's look at these three responses and we'll look at a variety of passages that I think give us some wisdom as well as just some practical observations that I hope to make for you to better prepare us as we give the gospel. When someone rejects the gospel, when someone sneers, when someone mocks, what should we do? I think the first response for us to that response to the gospel message is to keep trying. Why? Because they may believe later. Are there any examples of this in Scripture? I've mentioned this one a couple of times in the last few weeks. But Jesus' own family, his brothers particularly, rejected him initially. You want to be a good prophet? Go be a prophet somewhere else. We don't want to hear it. They don't trust Christ until they see him at his resurrection. Some point after that time, they actually turn to Christ and they're not in positions of spiritual maturity until Acts 15, particularly in the case of James, Jesus' half-brother James. And the others we don't see mentioned at all. Maybe it took them longer to grow to spiritual maturity. So they may believe later. We see that example from Jesus' family. We see that example from Paul. What will we see Paul doing here in just a few chapters in Acts? Standing and participating with those who are stoning Stephen for preaching the gospel message. It's not until Acts 9, after he has persecuted the church intensely and fervently and in anger, that God converts him. So keep trying. Don't give up on that person. While you keep trying, what can you do? Well, you can certainly pray for their salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 2 points us to this truth. Paul said it is right and proper for prayers to be made for kings and all those who are in authority. That's significant, I think, in our day, particularly as we come up on an election season, because we as Christians have done a much better job of rooting for our candidates and mocking those who get elected that we don't agree with than we have at praying for them. But if God desires us to pray for them, if God would desire us to pray for rulers, certainly he desires us to pray for everyone else. I think we could safely say that. And so, we ought to pray for their salvation, even when we think it's unlikely. And we've had bad people in authority over us at different points in our lives. We have to admit that and recognize that. I think that's, that's just a fact. That being said, who's in authority at the time that Paul is writing? pagan kings a Caesar who people worshipped as a god Caesars who would turn to the persecution of Christians and yet Paul says pray for those who are in authority that we would have peace that we'd be able to practice Christianity but also that they might be saved so if Paul can say pray that about a pagan king who hates and opposes Christianity what excuse do we have for not praying for people 
along those same lines. We also need to remember God's sovereignty. As we keep trying, we respond with prayer, we remember God's sovereignty. There's a fascinating passage in Acts 18, verse 10, in which Paul says, God says to Paul, Stay here, I have many people in this city. And the strong implication of that text is, these many people are people who had not yet trusted Christ, and Paul needed to stay there so that they could be saved, added to the church, and instructed in what it meant to follow Christ. If God is sovereign in the act of evangelism, that should give us confidence and hope. We're not doing it by ourselves. We're not doing it with no point. We're not doing it having to guarantee the result. That's God's job. We must speak. We are God's ambassadors. But God is the one who transforms hearts and grants repentance and faith. So keep trying. They may believe later. As you keep trying, pray for their salvation and remember God's sovereignty. But in connected with this as well, when someone rejects the gospel, I think we have a responsibility to continue to be around sinners. And in parentheses, I put in my notes, even when it's uncomfortable. Now, why do I say this? Because it's not always the most pleasant thing to be around lost people for a number of reasons. And yet God has called us to be in the world, though not of it. What example do we have? Jesus was known as someone who spent time with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus went to the people who were despised in society, who clearly were cheats and liars and immoral and drunkards and all of these sorts of things, and Jesus went and spent time with them and was diligent to accomplish God's purpose in revealing himself to them. Now, do we do everything that Jesus did? No. But in that particular thing, I think Jesus sets an example for us. Consider another example, the Samaritan woman in John 4. What does she do? She believes in Jesus. She immediately goes back to the people in the city where she was and says, Come hear this man who told me all the things I ever did. And she brings them to the one who could give them spiritual life. What sort of people do you think that was that she was hanging out with? Given her lifestyle, it was probably not the upstanding members of the community. She went back among sinners to point them to Jesus. Romans 10.17, I think, supports this idea as well. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How will they hear unless someone goes? How will someone go unless they are sent? Who's going to take the gospel? If we assume it's someone else, there's probably someone that we're neglecting. A further support, 1 Corinthians 5 is a passage that I think corrects the misunderstanding that sometimes we have in independent Baptist churches of let's sort of withdraw and wall ourselves off from the world so that we're not corrupted by evil. Why is that not a good idea? Well, for one thing, it doesn't work. The monks and the nuns discovered this in the Roman Catholic Church for centuries. You can wall yourself off from everything out in the world and you will still sin because sin isn't just a matter of what's outside you influencing you. It's a matter of what's inside you being expressed in your life. But more importantly, besides the fact that it doesn't work to isolate ourselves, is the fact 
that the ones that we are commanded to avoid or hold at arm's length to a certain extent are those who say, I'm a Christian, I follow God, but I live in a way that doesn't match up to that profession. Those are the ones that we're not supposed to give the benefit of the doubt in terms of saying, yes, everything's okay. You're a good Christian brother or sister, even though you're living in this way. Those are the ones that we're supposed to treat in that way. And ultimately, if they reach the end point of church discipline, what are we supposed to do toward them? We're supposed to witness to them because they're acting as though they don't know God, just like we would witness to someone who never made a profession of faith. What about family? This is a challenge, and connected with the passage in 1 Corinthians 5, sometimes people say, well, that means you don't even spend time with your family if they're living in an ungodly way. I'm not convinced that that's the case. I believe that there are certain responsibilities that we have to fam toward family regardless of their status of salvation before God. If you're a husband or a wife with an unsaved spouse, you still have the biblical responsibilities to... Uh, to love if the, for the husband, to submit for the wife, uh, to provide for the children if they don't know Christ to the extent that they're still in your household. There are certain responsibilities that we have that we don't cast off just because of someone's profession of faith or lack thereof. At the same time, I think that there is this appropriate tension that we cannot treat someone who does not know God as though everything is okay between them and God. This is the challenge, I think, that we face. We don't want to wall ourselves off, but at the same time, we don't want to behave like everything's okay all the time without ever bringing up God, without ever acknowledging that there's a problem. Finding the balance between those two things is difficult, it's challenging, it takes wisdom. Sometimes we get it wrong, and yet I cannot... Um, avoid this person because they need to hear the truth. But on the other hand, I can't do everything that they're doing and say everything they're doing is okay. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. And I think our attitude is important. Be loving. I think it's easy for us to be angry at those who are closest to us when they don't trust in Christ because we care more about them than we care about just strangers that we don't know. Should we have a concern for all to trust Christ? Yes. But I think we feel that most keenly and most deeply when it comes to people who are closely connected to us who haven't turned to trust in Christ. So not only do we need to uh, be careful that we don't give up or that we keep trying to give them the gospel, not only should we be careful to not wall ourselves off but instead spend time with sinners, but also we need to use biblical labels. I think this ties in with the idea of treating as though everything's okay. In the Bible, God is angry with sin. God's not angry with mistakes or letting people down or those sorts of things. And so I think it's important for us to make it clear that rejecting God is not just an either-or. You can take it or leave it, but rejecting God is an act of disobedience that is expressed in a variety of ways. Refusing to accept the gospel is connected with a whole lot of other sins. But our society has done a great job of making sin acceptable. So-and-so is living an, an alternative lifestyle instead of this person is behaving immorally. 
this person suffers from kleptomania instead of this person is a thief or practices stealing. Society focuses on I am whatever, fill in the blank, instead of I do whatever and fill in the blank because, and partially, because it's easier, it gives people a way out. If I am someone whose natural tendency is just to take stuff that's not mine, just who I am, deal with it. If I am someone who is actively choosing to take things that aren't mine and I know it and I'm responsible for it, I'm guilty, but there's also hope for change. And that's where I think we do ourselves a disservice when we give way to our culture and fail to recognize sin as sin. And so again, sometimes the conversations that we have with lost people, whether they be friends or family or coworkers, sometimes it's not always about pray this prayer with me. Sometimes it's, well, they say, oh, I just did whatever. Well, you know, that's this. It's not something that's an aspect of who you are. This is something that you can change with God's help. And again, we don't want to misrepresent the gospel. You don't get saved so you can fix this problem. But your only hope of fixing that problem is if you trust in Christ. Because it's a sinful behavior, and God has the solution to that sin. We also, at the same time, I think, have to recognize that people are slaves to sin. So while we identify sin properly as sin, we also have realistic expectations about their behavior in general. And there's a tension here. Uh, at our old house, there was a group of uh, teenagers standing outside the fence swearing for like 10 minutes and so I went over to him I'm like hey my kids are playing in the backyard I'd rather you didn't talk that way you know they gave me a funny look and, and they ended up leaving after a bit was that wrong I don't think it's always wrong to do something like that but I think we also have to recognize particularly when it's a concern for uh, family or, or protection in some way but I think we also have to recognize that's not really going to get fixed even if I harp on it for months on end why? Because that person doesn't know God. That person doesn't belong to God. And so all these outward sinful behaviors are going to keep being expressed until God changes their heart. And again, I think that that's something that in independent Baptist churches, unfortunately, sometimes we've been good about creating external conformity without recognizing that we have to deal with the heart. At the same time, we don't say, oh, my heart's okay. It doesn't matter what I do outside. So there, again, there's a balance there use biblical labels, but then also be wise. Here's three, three questions that I think we could ask. What is my proximity to this person? In terms of our persistence in giving the gospel to someone who's rejected it, what's my proximity to this person? How close am I to this person geographically? We'll talk more about relationally in just a minute. Think about Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. We'll see that in Acts chapter 8. God said, go here. We don't have direct revelation from God saying, go witness to this person. We don't have that today. And yet God has sovereignly placed us around different people in our lives and put us right next to people who don't know God. That could be a coworker, that could be a neighbor, that could be whoever. God has put you right next to someone, probably a number of people, who don't know Jesus as their Savior. Paul's ambition, according to Romans 15, 19 was that he had preached the gospel fully in a particular region. 
Now, some of that was connected with the task God had assigned him. Some of that was connected with his understanding of his mission from God. So I'm not saying that that's a command for us to do. I'm not saying we have to tell a significant percentage of the people and, and sort of saturate our area with the gospel. Not a command, but I think it is a right example for us to consider. Have I done my responsibility in taking the gospel to the people who are around me geographically? We see the gospel spreading outward in the book of Acts, but it starts right there at home. Again, Acts 1-8 is not a mandate. It's what God is doing, not what we're commanded to do. And yet, I think there's a sense in which sometimes it's easier for us to say, let's support missions. That's far away. That's not I, Somebody else is doing the hard work of going up and talking to people and all those sorts of things. What am I doing to talk to people around me about the gospel? Connected with this as well would be Paul's concern for his fellow Israelites. He says, my heart's prayer and desire for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul was concerned about those who were from his same ethnic background. Again, this is not a, a race thing. This is not a, this is the only people you ever witnessed to. Because what was Paul? Paul was the apostles to the Gentiles. And yet he didn't lose a sense of the necessity of praying for and seeking the salvation of those who were close to him in terms of family and, and, and geography and all of those sorts of things. Paul was concerned for those who were around him. I think one other thing connected with this idea of proximity is we have to consider the length of our opportunity with a particular person. You're sitting next to someone on a bus or on an airplane or something like that, you've got a fixed window to interact with that person. Maybe God will give you an opportunity to talk to them later on, maybe he won't. So there's, I think, a greater sense of urgency because you have sort of one shot at giving the gospel to them, and it's take it or leave it. Are you going to make the most of it or not? Someone who is living next to you, generally, not always, we don't know the future. James 4 makes that very clear. Generally, you have a longer period of time. And so I think that there's parallels between this and preaching. When I preached my first sermon when I was fairly young, I kind of felt like I had to fit everything in the Bible all into that one sermon. I think it was like 20 single-spaced pages. I'm not sure why the people in the church put up with it. They're like, here's this teenager. You know, They were kind to me. You don't have to say everything in every conversation, but you should say something in every conversation. And when you have people that you're going to continue to see day after day, I think we probably ought to be wise about the things that we say. And so uh, we can talk more about that in a moment. Again, we are not guaranteed tomorrow. We've had friends who had, you know, a neighbor who's 80-something, and uh, that neighbor was there for a few months, and then she died, and, and they had that brief window to minister to her. You know, uh, we had neighbors that were next to us for four years. We didn't do as good of a job as we could have at witnessing to them, but we tried to build that relationship and to pray for them and to give them the gospel. And so, again, I think we have to be aware of the length of our opportunity with particular people. One other observation about this idea. There's just practical realities about our interaction with people. When I was in college, we were going down to Clemson. There was uh, some grad students that I was doing a Bible study with. They moved. I moved. We're not seeing each other face-to-face -face regularly. Can I still pray for that person? Yes. Can I maintain the same level of relationship that I had before? It's challenging, if not near impossible. 
which flows into the next point. What's my relationship to this person? The last one was about geography. Who has God put me close to in terms of physical proximity? This point has to do with what's my relationship to this person? Is this someone that I'm close to, that I know really well, that I've built a relationship with? Does that relationship, whether it's with family or with friends, does that relationship, have you made clear that you know God and that they need to know God? Why is this important? A number of reasons. The longer you wait, the harder it will be to bring up. If you don't mention who God is to the people who are closest to you, then you're probably not sufficiently controlled by the motivation we looked at in 2 Corinthians 5. And this doesn't show them the importance of God in your life. In other words, if I know someone for five years and then all of a sudden I say, and by the way, you need to trust in Jesus, there's going to be a little bit of, that came out of left field. What, 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 what's this new thing that you're telling me about? Is this something that just happened? Or, or why didn't you tell me before? Again, if we haven't done it, don't let that reason stop you. But as we initiate relationships with people, I think we have to be thinking, how am I going to get to the gospel in relationship, in this relationship with this person? A third thing, a wisdom factor that I think we need to think about as we face rejection is, what are the likely results if I witness to this person? What will happen to or with me? Or we phrase it another way, how much suffering am I willing to endure? And I don't believe that God calls everyone to the same degree of suffering. I think that there is a matter of wisdom and of God's sovereignty in sending Paul as a single guy to experience things that he experienced versus sending someone that had a wife and kids. Again, there are people who have had wives and kids and gone to the mission field, and God has used them. So I'm not denying that as a possibility, but I do think there are significantly more challenges for that person versus someone like Paul who didn't have attachments. So this question is made more complex by the nature of our relationship to the people around us because we have to consider the effect not only on us individually, but also on those who are connected with us. So if I'm going to, to talk to someone who, um, who I know is going to behave in a certain way, perhaps it's someone that I go and meet them somewhere else and at least initially I don't take my kids with me just for sake of wisdom, for sake of just observing the situation because I don't know how this person is going to react. Am I avoiding telling them the gospel? No. Am I being careful about how I do it? I think we ought to think about it. Is there biblical precedent for this? I think sometimes it's appropriate to back off. Acts 17 and verse 10, if you're still there, look at what Paul does. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. That was in connection with verse 5, where the Jews became jealous, formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and tried to bring uh, Paul and, and Silas out to, uh, basically to tear them limb from limb or stone them or something along those lines. Is it sometimes appropriate to back off? Yes. Is it sometimes appropriate to push through? Yes. Later in Acts, Paul's going to be beaten, and he's going to use it as an opportunity to present the gospel. So I'm not saying that either one is necessarily the right choice. I'm saying there's biblical precedent for both, and I'm saying we have to ask God for wisdom about which sort of situation it is. 
Ask this question, am I helping the gospel more by pushing on or by stopping at this point? Because again, coming back to God's sovereignty, if this person is not hearing the gospel, perhaps it's not God's time for them to be saved, or perhaps it's my opportunity to suffer as Christ suffered. And I don't know that that's something that we can necessarily assign for each other. You need to do this in this situation, you need to do that in that situation, but I do think it's something that we should prayerfully consider before God. And I don't think that we should give up on things indefinitely. Relationships change over time. Sometimes someone may reject at this point, and then something comes up in their life, and God breaks them, and now they're ready to hear the gospel. So just because they rejected in the past doesn't mean we give up on them forever. So we take all of these factors together, and we just look at some of these biblical examples, and we say, if someone rejects the gospel, don't write them off. God can still save that person. But then we come to the person who questions. When someone rejects the gospel, we're sometimes caught off guard because we're not sure how to respond. But when someone doesn't immediately accept the, que- the gospel, we say, okay, now what am I supposed to do? I think the first thing that you could do potentially is to explain yourself. If you're still there in Acts 17, look at verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he's reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So when that happened, did Paul freeze? Did Paul said, I'm not, say, I'm not ready? What does he do? Verse 22, he stands up and he starts giving them the gospel. People may not immediately accept the truth that you're telling them about God, but some of them may be willing to hear it as time goes on, and we should take those opportunities. So I think from this passage, we could make these observations. It's appropriate to make an initial presentation of the gospel. Here's the truth about God. I think it's also appropriate for us to watch for signs or statements of confusion. We see that in verse 18. That some of them are calling him an idle babbler. Others are saying he seems to proclaim strange deities. Verse 20, you're bringing strange things to our ears. We don't get it. How do you know if someone isn't getting what, you say, what you're saying? If they have a puzzled look on their face, if, they, if their body language is changing, if they just come out and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I think we need to be wise in looking at these situations when someone, they're not ready to accept the gospel, but they're not out of hand rejecting it. How are we going to respond? How are we going to help them move forward? And we need to be clear. Again, if you're going to use specifically Christian words, define what you mean. This is important both for sake of understanding what they mean and for correcting false definitions of those words that they may have heard from some sort of other religious background that they've had. So when they question, explain yourself. Secondly, be patient. Just out of curiosity, how many of you trusted Christ the first time you heard, here's Jesus, you need to follow him? Okay. I did the invitation backwards. Nobody raised their hand. 
we generally don't accept things the first time that we hear them. Can God's spirit so radically intervene that that's not the case? Certainly. But generally speaking, we have to hear something more than once before we A, understand it, and B, accept it. Romans 10, 8 through 10, we would say, describes trusting Christ, right? Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. How many words are there in that verse that someone who has no exposure to the Bible would understand? At least half of them, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. So explain what the scripture says. Use the scripture, but explain what it says. And repeat answers as needed. What does this mean? This is going to take time. And so we have to be patient. And then I think thirdly, be creative. I don't have a Bible verse for that heading, but I think there, are, there is scriptural precedent for some of these points. Use your allies. Every person knows there's a God. Every person knows there's right and wrong. A lot of people try to pretend that they don't know those things, but they do know them. So use that to your advantage. I mean, Romans 1 says, God is revealed in creation. We sang about it this morning from Psalm 19. God's glory is in all the earth. We can come up with all sorts of explanations of why this isn't God, it's some other thing. God's glory is revealed in all the earth. Every person knows, whether they're Jew, Gentile, whatever, every person has God's law written on their heart and mind and knows when they're do some, doing something wrong. And they can try to explain it away by saying it's a societal convention, my parents taught me that, and so on and so forth. To prove this from the reverse, why is it that when you tell a two-year-old don't do that, they immediately do it. Because they know right from wrong, and they love doing wrong. Use your allies. And they may not, rec you don't necessarily have to tell the person that you're talking to that you're using their, the, these allies God has given you, because they probably aren't going to take it kindly, but use them. Provoke them to think. Uh, before I move on to that, provoking them to think, I was uh, reading a I don't know if you call it a forum, I guess, yesterday. And it was from the perspective of people who were working with or for Christians and wanted to come up with creative ways to get them to stop witnessing to them. So what were some of the things that they would say? They say, well, say that there's something that's private to you and you don't really want to talk about. Or bring up the one about there's three things you don't talk about and religion is one of them. Or uh, answer them in vague terms. Okay? We've all experienced those responses, whether it's someone who's read a how-to circumvent Christians or not. They said, well, you can just sort of guilt them into making them feel as though you're be they're being impolite if they, if they keep asking you. So where's the boundary? Where do we give up at that point? I think it's something for us to consider because is it just an initial throwing up a, a blockade that God is going to overcome? Is it a deep-seated rebellion that we have to pray for? I don't think that we can let people's disregard for God and his word govern whether or not we give them the gospel. That being said, if there's a no soliciting sign on the door, I think legally you're not supposed to knock, so let's not knock on the door. If you see them out working their yard, you can probably say hi. I don't think there's any, any reason not to do that. So I realize there's things like that we have to navigate carefully, but I think we need to recognize that 
Sometimes with a little more effort, we could overcome some of these initial rejections. But going back to those who are questioning, who are thinking about these things, provoke them to think more. Someone says, well, I don't think that, I don't think that it's right that this person killed so-and-so and got off the hook. Do you believe in natural selection? Why do you care about that person? Evolutionarily speaking, you shouldn't care. You're borrowing that from my worldview. You can have it, but recognize where it came from. And we don't have to come up with arguments like that all the time, but say things that will provoke people to think. What does Paul do? Paul references current events or things that he observes. Look at verse 22 of Acts 17. I found an altar that said to an unknown God. Let me tell you who he is. Hey, I know that you pray. I, I observe that you pray a lot. Maybe you're speaking to someone who's a Muslim. Hey, I notice you go to your church on Saturdays. Hey, tell me about that. Find a connection point with the person that you're trying to give the gospel to and talk to them. Paul references culture. I realize this can be overdone. But what does Paul do? He says, even some of your own poets have said, we also are his children. And he says that um, the divine nature is li not like all these sorts of things. He's referencing things that they are familiar with. Is this worth doing? I think it is worth doing to point people to Christ. Show how the things that they hold dear teach about God or are false. Look what Paul does in verse 23. He says you worship it in ignorance. He says you have good motives, but you're going about it in the wrong way. He doesn't say this offensively. He just states it as a fact. You worship an unknown God? Let me tell you who he is. You worship him ignorantly. I want you to know him better. He's not coming after them and saying you are all, you're all terrible people. He's saying, in fact, you're very religious people. If you got to heaven by being religious, you guys would be in good shape. But you're not because you're worshiping the wrong God. So we have to be clear, but we have to be kind in the way that we approach this. And again, verse 29 is saying, we don't worship God by means of idols. Tr you're trying to worship God, that's good, but you don't worship him by means of idols. Again, he's pointing out areas where they're right, areas where they're wrong, correcting their view, pointing them to Christ. What's the point of all these things? It takes skill, it takes practice, but anybody who knows Christ can start with the fact that they know Christ and gain the experience over time. You don't have to be a guy who stands up and is an apologist and debates people all the time and all of these sorts of things in order to give the gospel. The more you do it, hopefully the better you will be at it, but all of us are called to do it and all of us are capable of doing it. We come to the easiest and most joyful response, which is when someone is ready to accept following Christ, how do we help someone to do that? When they accept, going back to something I said a few minutes ago, make sure they understand. Sometimes we're, we're quick to jump the gun. Somebody says, does this sound good? You say, Do this, does this sound good? The person says, yes. You say, okay, let's pray a prayer. Make sure they know what it is they're agreeing to. Make sure they know what it is that they're believing, because... 
If you haven't done your job at defining terms, if you haven't done your job at showing that it's not Jesus plus all these other things you're already believing, but Jesus instead of all those things, then there's a parallel between what happened when the Roman Catholic Church came into various countries in South America and in Africa. What happened? They said, Jesus, great. We've got all these gods. Let's add Jesus to them. And now we have this blended thing that wasn't their old religion and it wasn't Roman Catholicism. It was some hybrid thing. And that's a false gospel. We should be more concerned that people understand the true gospel and don't sort of add God to what things they already believe. So make sure they understand. Also explain a proper response to the gospel using the scripture. What does Peter say in Acts 2? Repent, be baptized, receive the Spirit. What does Paul say in Acts 16.31? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. How does he say it in Romans 10? Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. Why is there variation in the things that they're saying? Because the specific words are important, but they are less important than accepting the truths that those words are describing. I want to say it doesn't matter what you say. If there's not an expression of sin, an expression of repentance, all of those sorts of things, then someone may have missed part of what the gospel means. But you can be saved if you don't say the exact right words, if you don't remember the time when you prayed the prayer, if you don't uh, remember all the circumstances and how you felt if you didn't feel a certain way you can still be saved apart from those things what must happen is that you recognize who Jesus is and that you're turning away from your sin and you're turning to him in order to follow God and that's the thing that we have to stress to people have you done this more importantly do you continue to believe this and then we need to explain the next steps we talked about this this morning from Acts chapter 2 Get baptized. Join a church. Get involved. Grow in following Christ. We walk people through those steps, and we say, okay, here's the next step for you. Do you understand how to get there? Because sometimes you might not know how to get to that next step, because no one's ever come up and told you. So we shouldn't assume that. We should help people to walk through their progress in the Christian life and grow to maturity, because that's God's end goal. Not just that we get saved and we're added to the church, and then, okay, everything's set, and we just sort of wait for Jesus to come back. But it's that we serve God while we wait for Jesus to come back. We learn more about who he is as we're taught truth from Scripture. And we have to help one another along in this process, because that's part of what God has called us to do in the church. So there are three primary responses to the gospel. No. Tell me more later. Yes. What do you do when you get those responses? If it's no, don't lose hope. Can God overcome that person's rejection? Yes. Do we sometimes have to back off for a while? Yes. Do we sometimes have to just say, I'm going to pray for this person right now? Yes. Do we sometimes have to press through an uncomfortable situation? Yes. And God give us wisdom to know which of those particular states we're in. What about when someone says, I, I don't really get it, but I'm willing to learn more? What can you do? Let's study the Bible together. If you say, I want to do that with someone, there's resources I'd be glad to provide you with and point you to. Study through the Bible with someone. Walk through a tract with that person. Don't do something formal, just have conversations with them as you see them at work, as you see them in the yard, as you see them walking down the street. 
build the relationship, present truth, God can be using you to help them to understand the truth and bring them to salvation. And if someone says, I'm ready to trust Christ, don't put them off, don't dampen their faith, but make sure they understand, show them how to do it, and help them become a part of the church because the long-term goal is that they grow up and they start doing the same thing. That's how the church grows. If the church grows because I preach on Sunday morning, that's a fairly limited impact compared to each one of us talking to all of the people that we know and giving them the gospel and seeing God work. It's not the task of any one person. My task, it's not the task of any one person in the congregation. It's all of our tasks together, and God can use all of us together. So when you see these responses, don't get frustrated. Don't get confused. Think about what should I do next, and God will help us to accomplish this task. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word together. A lot of times we don't say the right words. We pass up opportunities that you sent that are clear opportunities that we should have taken. We behave in such a way that undermines the things that we're trying to tell people. Lord, there's many ways in which we can fail, and yet um, marvelously and mysteriously and... Thankfully, you have given us this opportunity. So help us to get better at taking your truth to the people around us to figure out where we're weak in our ability to do so, to recognize that our strength comes from you, our wisdom comes from your word, and that this is, if this is something that you've called us to do, it may be impossible for us of ourselves but we can do all things that you have called us to do through Christ who gives us strength. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do this task well. We pray for Saturday that as people come into our church building, that you would just really give us wisdom to, uh, to show them kindness, to show them respect, to uh, be friendly and welcoming, to know that... Uh, We've just invited them in to sort of say, here's who we are, here's where we meet, and, and not even for a church service, but just to uh, sort of observe uh, how we interact with each other and, and, and give them this opportunity. Lord, we pray that you would give us opportunities to build relationships from this. Help us to be doing the same thing with the people that you have put around us in our lives, starting to build the relationship, making it clear who it is that we follow, and seeing you work. We pray that you would bless us in these ways. In Christ's name, amen.